always get demon texts, either the first week of September when a bunch of people come, uh, come to visit for school or on Mother's Day. I don't know why that always ends up happening, but always the demon text on Mother's Day or the first couple weeks of September. Um, but it's kind of hard to get around if you read through any of the Gospels because it's peppered throughout uh, each of these Gospels. Uh, when I first opened up this passage and read about this story, the first thing that came to mind was one of my first experiences in ministry before Reality Santa Barbara was a church. We were all at Reality Carpinteria, and at Reality Carpinteria, my primary role there was to lead this college ministry that met on Friday nights. I loved it. I had gone to school here in Santa Barbara, came out of it. Uh, that's where I got born again, was in my college years, and so I had this renewed passion for college students and that stage of life and young adults. So started this group, didn't know what I was doing or any of us were doing, we just wanted to get together and gather around Jesus, open up his word and sing. And most of the, the difficulties and drama that happened on those Friday nights were things like midterm exams and drama in relationships. That was most of my prayer life. Uh, praying for people. But on occasion, a few things would boil up to the top. One Friday night, after, a ser- uh, after I was done uh, preaching and the worship was over and people were just kind of mingling, uh, someone walked up to me, made a beeline for me uh, from across the room to tell me how excited they were about the things of God, how much the, that particular message touched them, the worship, all of that stuff, and was just full of glee and happiness and joy. And, uh, I received the compliment. And I started to ask questions just to get to know that person. And the more we discussed, the more we talked, the more uh, this person began to bring up uh, uh, what sounded like an imaginary friend uh, that the person had. And the more the conversation went on, the more I started to get this feeling that it wasn't this uh, kind of imaginary mermaid friend in the faculties of the mind that they were talking about. Uh, but that this, this was a person, the person was describing as someone who was accompanying them, speaking to them very clearly, directing them, and actually inside them. And she wanted me to know this person. I said, no, thank you. <clears throat> I remember uh, after praying uh, in a group with that, that group of college students leaving, walking down the aisle uh, if you've ever been at Reality Carp, it's just the sanctuary opens up into the foyer and then into some offices. Went through the foyer into the office uh, to grab some things. I didn't get about 30 feet away from that group of people before the room started spinning around me. Now, I'm not the type of person in the room, even though I'm a Christian, believe in this stuff, even though I'm a pastor, I'm not the type of person that instantly thinks of demons whenever things go wrong, Right? Uh, that's probably the last thing that I think of. There's people in my life, though that's the, the top of their list, and I need them in, their, in my life. I tend to not think about that first. Uh, I'm not the, the type of person th- that sees demons all over under every rock, if you know what I mean. Uh, and so my immediate reaction to that was like, I need to drink more water. I'm getting dizzy. Problem was, I'd been drinking water. Uh, as the room was spinning around me, I started to push through the door of the office where... Uh, some of the pastors had their desks and began to feel myself blacking out and fell down on the ground in the middle of the office uh, and passed out. I woke up sometime later uh, on the floor face down and found that I, I couldn't move. I couldn't move my limbs, I couldn't move my body, I could barely speak. Uh, 
I was completely alert. I was completely conscious. I was in my right mind. I was not having a heart attack. I was 25, and I eat my vegetables. I was not dehydrated. I could feel something that I could not see pushing me, unmistakably crushing me under its weight into the floor. It was at that point I knew this was not an imaginary friend. This was something else. My phone had fallen right, bef- uh, right out next to me on the floor, and I could just grab it with my, my fist and hit the speed dial, which was my pastor at the time, Britt Merrick, and I texted him two words, demons, help. Britt came over uh, with another guy, and they prayed for me, prayed over my whole house, prayed over me, until that thing released itself, until it had been released by the power of Christ evident in those prayers. Uh, That was probably eight, nine years ago and was probably one of the first experiences with demons that I've had outside of the subtle and the mundane and the ordinary. And when my friends prayed for me, not only was it my first experience of what supernatural opposition felt like, that in that moment, even though I'd been doing a college ministry for some time, I realized in that moment, whoa, this stuff is real. I also realized something else. Wow, Jesus is powerful. He set, he set me free from whatever this was that was oppressing me in that moment by just the words of a few intercessors praying for me. I didn't stay on the floor. But leaving that, and that wouldn't be the last experience I would ever have, it would be one of the most formative, as my eyes were open to things that, I, that you don't often see with your eyes. What the Bible teaches from beginning to end is that every human being on the planet is engaged in living in what we might call spir- a spiritual battle. You might hear the, the phrase in Christian circles, spiritual warfare, that's the same thing. However you want to call it, Every human being is engaged in a spiritual battle. And what can be confusing about that spiritual battle is that it often takes place on three different fronts. I have a Venn diagram on the screen just because I love using Venn diagrams whenever I can. So here's one. This describes the three different places where we might sense a struggle. And one of them is what we sometimes call in churches as the flesh, the battle of the flesh up there on the left-hand corner. Uh, The flesh isn't just your skin and muscle tissue. Uh, It's not the Bible just ridiculing uh, the physical body. The flesh was Paul's shorthand to refer to a variety of things, things like uh, your body, of course, but also your habits, your behavior, your attitude, and your cravings. To put it in the words of the late Dallas Willard, it is the body, it is that, that sphere of your influence where your heart, your willpower, outsources all of its decision-making power. When you want to do something, it's in the flesh that it's actually taken, uh, carried out. That's your little kingdom. That's where you get to do all the stuff that your heart really desires, whether good or bad. This is why Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Not only do we have attitudes and uh, a capacity to decide and make choices, not only do we have cravings and passions uh, and behavior and uh, 
uh, habits as well, but those things are all tainted by our sinful nature. This is why the NIV will sometimes translate flesh simply as sinful nature. And this is why Paul, in one of his most articulate descriptions of the struggle in Romans chapter 7, would describe it just as that, as a struggle, as a struggle that seems like uh, he's, he's wrestling with something inside. Romans chapter 7, verse 21 says this. Paul says, I find it to be a law. Now, remember, Paul is a Christian as he's writing this, not just a Christian, but an apostle. And he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Another description of the spirit of the heart. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I want, I'm born again. I want to do the things of God. I want to be holy. I want to be righteous. I want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I love the things of God. I'm passionate about him. All of those things, I sense them in the deepest part of who I am. But, verse 23, I also see in my members, again, another word for the flesh, in my body, in my habits, in my behavior, in my attitude, in my cravings, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I can't read that section without reading the rest. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is Paul describing? He's describing a struggle that occurs inside of us. That even when we're reborn, we are wrestling with our own sinful nature. This is the normal battle of every Christian. But it doesn't, doesn't just stop there. We're also told that there is the world. And when the Bible uses the word world, it sometimes uses some reflection and nuance. Sometimes the biblical authors are speaking about the planet itself. Sometimes they're speaking about the stars and the universe, the world's. Sometimes the Bible is speaking about the population in the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And other times, the world is referring to a critical mass of people who are alienated from God and going in the same direction away from God and the influence that that has on everybody in it. And so the world in this, in this phraseology is referring to that critical mass, to the spirit or the course of the world around us, the influence of our own environment. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, you used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world. You used to walk in a way that reflected the values of a sinful environment. And what is the course of the world? Well, he goes on to say, the world is following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so in this battle, the spiritual battle that we all face, we have to deal with our own sinful nature. We have to deal with the environment that we find ourselves in that is contrary to the things of God. But there's a third component that the Bible screams at like a siren. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, terminology that Paul often used to describe the devil and demons or fallen angels. In other words, it's not just our flesh, 
It's not just our cravings and habits. It's not just the world, but it's also this real, invisible, spiritual opposition. There's more to things sometimes than meets the eyes, to quote the Transformers. And what's, what can sometimes be confusing about this is a lot of the battle sometimes falls right in the middle. It's not purely demonic influence, nor is it purely the flesh, nor is it purely the world, but there's some interaction there. Sometimes what we're going through can be described as being right in the middle. You see that? Working on my hops. Right in the middle. Where there is a blur between lines, where we find ourselves struggling, battling. And the battle that we face is the battle of our flesh and the environment in which we find ourselves and the devil. But the Bible does not hide that last component. And there are two equal but opposite errors that we can find ourselves in spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. One is giving the devil too much attention, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced a person like that in your life where the devil is just the, behind every single problem in your life, under every rock, in every building, in every disagreement that you have with somebody else. It's the devil. Somebody has a cold and they're like, it's the devil. Cast the devil out. You're like, well, maybe just wash your hands when you leave the bathroom. I don't know. Just a hunch. Sometimes it's, it's spiritual oppression, and other times it's not. So sometimes we can give the devil too much attention and too much credit. But on the equal but opposite side is giving him too little attention. Perhaps there's people in this room that have given concepts of spiritual warfare and spiritual climate too little attention. As Christians, Paul would tell us not to be unaware of the devil's schemes, I believe in 1 Corinthians. Christians are those who are aware that yes, there is the flesh, yes, there is the world, yes, there are just accidents, yes, there is uh, problems of emotional health and childhood development and institutional injustice and fallenness and personal responsibility and habits and all of that stuff, but there also is a devil and demonic oppression and influence and attack in the world. And not just in the world out there, but in our world right here in Santa Barbara. And this can come in different and varied and subtle forms. Spiritual attack. It can be so subtle, you just, that's not the first thing that you think of is, am I being attacked? Is this a spiritual attack? Uh, for people that don't follow Jesus, the Bible is pretty clear about it. One of those forms that the devil attacks is by spiritual blindness, by deception, by keeping you from seeing clearly. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this world, a euphemism for the devil, the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But in Christians, we can still encounter spiritual attack. We're not exempt from that type of battle. And for us, it can also take some subtle forms as well, things like temptation. It can uh, take forms uh, like false teaching or false ideas about who God is and what he has done. It can be things like uh, persecution. Or it can be very subtle things like Chronic guilt, doubt, and fear it can be waking up day after day, questioning whether God 
truly loves and values you. Wondering if life is worth living. Wondering if you're doing a good job as a parent and being on the precipice of giving up. It can be those little subtle things that the devil can use to get a foothold in our thought life. Sometimes demonic oppression is just a battlefield in the mind. But in some cases, we can see a very deep and intense influence like the one pictured here in Luke chapter 8. And I want to take you through this description, not to scare you, and not to get you looking or obsessed with stuff like this in our world that is Santa Barbara, but to see the very worst so that you can see the very best in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 26 through 30. Look at some of the descriptions. It it describes him as a man who had demons. We don't know how many demons. We don't know what they were doing. But we do know, we have a few clues. One, when Jesus asks his name, they reply, Legion. A legion was a Roman battalion, numbering anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 soldiers. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that there's that many demons, but I think we get from the, the context and the idea here and the name, there's a lot. The guy has no clothes. He's been stripped naked, and he's running through the tombs. The tombs being a sign of uncleanliness and decay for the Jewish people, kind of exacerbating the situation that this guy is finding himself in. He speaks with, even though we can't hear him, he speaks in what sounds like a different voice, for he's speaking on behalf of Legion in the first person, not for himself. And at other times, we're told by the narrator that this thing seizes him and that he even has superhuman strength breaking the chains that the townspeople have draped him in. He's not in control of his life. He's not in control of his voice. He's not in control of his body. He's not in control of his future. Even if none of you ever feel literally and exactly what this guy felt, perhaps you can say too, I feel like I'm not in control of anything in my life. What we should be able to gather from a story like this, at the very least, is that yes, there are some situations in life that can be easily boiled down to behavior and bad choices and decisions, but we would also have to say with the testimony of Scripture, there is a supernatural battle for the souls of men and women. It's not simply personal responsibility. It's not simply bad choices, although we'd have to include all of that. There is also a supernatural battle for the souls of men and women. We often speak of this uh, in our church as our vision, which is for people on the fence to step into a pathway of life in Christ. And we use the, the word fence in the shorthand to refer to people in our city who are spiritually curious but noncommittal. Uh, they're on the fence. And our desire is to pull them off the fence. That's why we're here, to pull people off the fence, but not just to pull them on the, off the fence, but to bring them into relationship into an apprenticeship, into discipleship to Jesus Christ. We believe that is the best life anyone could ever hope for, and so that's why we exist. We exist for people on the fence. Well, apparently the devil does too. But Satan also exists for people who are spiritually curious and noncommittal. They're also lining the fence of Santa Barbara 
is all of this supernatural opposition, hoping to steer them, to deceive them, to capture them in his ways. It's for that reason that I don't just want to go from Sunday to Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday with the body of Christ just doing church good. I want more out of this. I want more out of myself. I want more out of us than simply putting together a group of people to eat some croissants. If that was your only reason for coming to church, you're probably super disappointed because we don't even have any. Sorry. I don't want to get to the end of my life and say to Jesus or say to, any, or say to my wife or say to myself or say to you, yeah, we did church good for 40 years. Lots of people came. The sermons were entertaining. The music was awesome. The lights went low. It was super awesome and mystical. Yay. I want something more than that. And to the degree that we use all of those things to accomplish it by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, win. But it starts with this recognition that there is a fence in our city full of children, full of families, full of the elderly, full of men, full of women, full of uh, people in their careers, full of people in college, on the fence, on the precipice of eternity. And two teams are vying for them, the church and the devil. If that doesn't wake you up this morning, I don't know what will. To quote the 21st century Spanish uh, monk, Nacho Libre. I don't just want to get paid to lose. I don't want to get to the end of my life just having done this to lose. I don't think you do either. I don't want to get paid to lose. I want to win. I want to win. I want to win. I want to win families to Christ. I want to win college students to Christ. I want to win children to Christ. I want the singles. I want the marrieds. I want the freshly divorced. I want the broken. I want the addicts. I want the disgusted. I want the broken and tired. I want the people who never want anything to do with church again. I want them all. I want to see people in the city of Santa Barbara step off the fence into a pathway of life in Christ. And I want to see Satan lose by the numbers one by one. Now there's a sense in the Christian's life where we believe, yes, the battle has already been won. Jesus has already decisively won that battle. So what are we talking about winning anyway if, we're, if Jesus has already won? And we would affirm that, yes, Christ has already won the battle. And one day when he returns, he will finish the job. And right now in the interim period, he has left a church called Reality Santa Barbara. And you may be asking, if Jesus has already won the battle, and he has when he died on the cross, as Colossians says, making a show, the devil openly humiliating him in front of all the world powers, decisively ending him until the time comes, why are we still struggling? Why is there a battle between the flesh and the world and the devil? I'll tell you, because in this interim period, the Bible describes the devil as a squatter. You know what a squatter is? 
someone who does not belong in your apartment but stays there because you have no idea that you let them in. In this interim period, the Bible describes the devil and his minions as a squatter who will take any ground that you surrender to him. Not just in your life, but in the city of Santa Barbara. I don't just want to do church really nice. And I certainly don't want to become a social club. I want to have fun. I want to have good parties. I want to eat a lot of food. And I want to laugh with you. I also want to win. I want to see people win in the city. And I want to see the devil lose. He's already lost the battle that matters. I want to see the devil lose people. Amen? The problem that I think faces a lot of us, faces me, that faces this, that faced this crowd in Luke chapter 8, is a little disheartening to me because I, I feel how real it is in my own life. That there's what I'm saying I want and what we want, and there's what we sometimes really want. I'd call this, we want God to bless our agenda. <laughs> we might say something like this, I like the idea of Jesus, but I also like my life the way that it is. So if Jesus can just come and attach himself to what I've already created, life will be awesome. And perhaps because of that, you have not fully committed or surrendered to the will of God in every area of your life. Maybe some of it, maybe you're a generous giver, maybe you attend church, but there's all of these areas in your life where you have effectively shut off to God's will in your life because you know that he's going to start poking at stuff that you cherish. It might be sin. Might be something you don't want to give up, something you, you're doing and you know you shouldn't do. It might be your own personal agenda. It might be simply your comfort or your security, but they're things that you're just hanging on to. And you're say, even if you're not saying this, your, your life is speaking. I want Jesus and the way my life is now. Can I have them both together? I don't want to change anything. Christian Smith, a professor of sociology at Notre Dame, after conducting an extensive study on the religious climate in America, had to coin a new term to describe religious life in America because of its unprecedented nature. The term that he came up for it was moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll unpack that in case that sounds like a mouthful. It, mean, it describes what he saw as the overwhelming spiritual stance of Americans, that God is someone who exists and does stuff, deism, but doesn't really get involved in our lives in any meaningful way and doesn't require much from us. He's just out there, and he comes in when we have an emergency, but he steps out when we want to live our lives the way that we want to live it. Christian Smith, in an extensive uh, research project, described and diagnosed many American Christians' faith as that. Where we have a preconceived idea of Jesus that fits into our own liking. We, uh, we have a personal buddy, personal Jesus, who takes our problems away but doesn't interfere too badly. And you can live this way, and you might have an easy, comfortable life for many years, but you also have a life that lacks true power, a life that does not look like the one that you read about in the New Testament, devoid of power, devoid of the outflow of the Holy Spirit in your life, devoid of the fruit of chains being broken. You're going to miss out on all that in order to have a safe and comfortable life. True power, the Bible tells us, comes 
not from holding on, not from heaping control or grabbing on to things the way that they are, but from loosening control. Jesus himself would say, the person who wants to, uh, to, to hang on to their life will end up losing it. But the person who loses their life for my sake, or read into that, loses control over their life for my sake, will actually find it. True power comes from surrender. And the thing that most of us, even though we might say, this is what I really want is my agenda, is to leave my life intact, not disturb anything too much, God. What we actually need is the presence of a powerful king in our lives. Can I read you a short little snippet about a powerful king in our text? Look at verse 31 through 35. I'm just going to read that whole thing over again. It says, and they, speaking of the demons, begged him, speaking of Jesus, the demons begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. This is Jesus 101. Demons beg him. There is no other story in the Bible that shows you anything different. This is the nature of the God that reality Santa Barbara worships. Demons tremble at his sight, begging him, don't torment us. Don't send us into the abyss before our due time. Verse 32, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, and so Jesus gave them permission. The demons come out of the man, enter the pigs, the herd rushes down the steep bank in the lake and drowns. Now, if you really like animals and you think they're cute, this is a really disturbing passage, and I'm sorry. We don't get a lot of answers in here about why this happened, other than it's the demon's fault. Jesus simply gave them permission. And that Jesus really loves this precious enslaved soul. But don't let it escape your mind, more importantly, that the person we worship and sing songs about and to every Sunday commands demons with a word and they obey him. Put yourself in the shoes of your typical Galilean at that time. Never before has something like this ever happened. This is unprecedented. Read through the entire Old Testament and you will not find it normal for demons to be cast out. There are a couple stories like when, when David, when he was a kid and he played the harp for King Saul who was being oppressed by a demon and the music, that spirit-empowered music kind of pushed the demon away. But we're not told, as far as I can tell, that it was cast out. And even if he was... Those were very rare. It's only when this guy breaks in on the scene, Jesus Christ in all of his glory, breaks into our world that demons start to freak out. And this person is alive in your spirit if you have made him your Lord. We'll talk about the mechanics of casting out demons when we get to chapter 10 because that one is also fun. Probably happened on Mother's Day, so see you then. <laughs> we'll save that for later. For now, I just, I just want you to feast, fill your mind with Jesus and where that demon-casting authority comes from. This demonized man is made whole. Listen to this description where it describes him not just as being forgiven, not just as being uh, set, uh, set free, I, I just love this description that Luke uses in verse 35. When the people came to see what happened, they saw the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
The word that uh, Luke uses here to describe him being healed is the Greek word sozo, which is more often translated as salvation. The guy experienced salvation. Salvation is incredible. It's more than simply having a guilt tree trip by, uh, trip by Jesus so that you can feel better about your sin. It's more simply than just being forgiven so that one day when Jesus comes, you can go to some distant planet and be with him. It might include some of those things, but salvation is comprehensive. Salvation is your mind being set free, your body being set free, you being made whole, your relationships being healed. It is the whole person being touched by Jesus. Salvation is not just a place that we go to when we die. It is the kingdom of God breaking into our world today and hitting us right here in the square footage in which we sit. It is legion coming face to face with Jesus and saying, there is a God and being released from all the oppression he has ever felt in his entire life. Salvation is you tasting the power of the kingdom in your life, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, right now. So that when we do go to heaven, when we die, and when we see him face to face and we become like him as he is, according to 1 John, we will simply have been following the trajectory that was set when we first encountered God. Jesus doesn't just want to make you a more religious, churchy person. His intent is to make you just like him. Salvation involves freedom from oppression by the devil. And John, Jesus' best young friend, would say something similar. Say in 1 John 3, 8, the Son of Man has come to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of Man, Jesus, has come to destroy the works of the devil. He's come into the city of Santa Barbara to destroy the works of the devil. Some of you need to take that to the bank because you've been losing and you need to win. Jesus Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. Where are the works of the devil evident in your school? Where are the works of the devil evident in your family? Where are they evident in your singleness, in your career, in your ambitions, in your dreams? Where are the works of the devil on Olive Street, in Milpa Street, in the Alameda Padre Serra, in De La Guerra? Where are the works of the devil in our own backyards? Where are the works of the devil being made evident in your children? Do we think about those things? Don't overthink them. Don't give the devil too much credit. He ain't that big a deal. But don't ignore him. And not for some sort of fatalism or that we might walk through the streets or in our own homes or in our jobs afraid, but so that we might know what their fate is and what ours is too. There's a lot of Christians in this building right now who need to remember the authority that they have in Christ. First John chapter 4, verse 4, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Do you realize that today? What would happen to our composure in Santa Barbara if more of us as believers walked out with the assumption that the most powerful being in the universe is walking with us through the streets? How would it change the way that we speak, the way that we think, the things that we do, the way that we walk, if we were to know 
that everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness has been given to us in Christ Jesus. True power comes from surrender. And surrender turns out to be inconvenient. In verse 32 through 33, it was the crowds, someone in the crowd that lost a large herd of pigs. Now, Mark tells us that there were about 2,000 of them in that herd. That's a lot of money. That's like your life savings back then. And lost it. Sometimes following Jesus means losing things that you were clinging to in the past. For them, it was economic. For you, God might call you to give up things that bring you a sense of security. Because he wants to bring a new form of security into your life right now. But there's a cost involved. There's a sacrifice. Sometimes what's inconvenient about the presence of the king is discomfort. In verse 36 through 37, it says, Those who had seen this told uh, them outside of town how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And so Jesus got into the boat and returned. This should break our hearts. An entire town was more troubled by the mess that Jesus caused in his work of salvation than by their desire and need for it. They end up telling them to leave their town. Sometimes following Jesus is messy. Sometimes it's not clean. Sometimes it's not convenient. Sometimes it's not very safe. I could imagine some of the crowds hearing about not only this incredible demonic principality in their own town that they can't control, but this Jesus, this rabbi, rolling in and controlling it with the word, being spooked out. Sometimes Christianity is messy. Sometimes Christianity, all the time, Christianity involves surrender. Look at the, look at the request of the demon-possessed man after he gets healed. It says in verse, 39, uh, verse 38, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And so the man went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He had an agenda. Jesus gave him a new agenda. Thankfully, he chooses Jesus' agenda. Sometimes we have to surrender our plans in life. Sometimes there's discomfort in following Jesus. Sometimes there's sacrifice involved. And you might be wrestling with this because you want Jesus, but you want to keep your life intact. And you find that surrender is always inconvenient. The truth is, Jesus is inconvenient. He never promised to be convenient. Sometimes Jesus can be what seems like a little bit unsafe. Sometimes if you read enough of Jesus, he says things that are a little uncomfortable, that poke at some of the things that we most want and desire and cling to. Sometimes he's even offensive. Some of the things that he says are offensive to our social norms. But the question that all of us in this building should be asking above those questions is this. But is he worth it? There are people in this room sitting in seats who once upon a time made up their mind to say, yes, he is. 
And when you go through the discomfort, when you go through the sacrifice, when you go through the pain, when you go through multiple levels of surrender and you constantly ask yourself, is he worth it? Your, que- your answer has always been yes. And that has been what's carried you by the power of the Spirit to the next season. But some of you are asking, I'm not sure. Jesus may rearrange your life, and that's a fact. If that's what you're most afraid of, he might rearrange your life, but your life will be better than how he found it. And nobody understands inconvenience more than Jesus, who left his throne, his right seat at the Father, put on flesh and dwelt among us, 1 John chapter 1, verse 14. And as Paul would say in Philippians 2, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself of divine privilege. Didn't take advantage of it. He left it on the shelf in order to become a human being and took on a human role, becoming a servant to us all, even to the point of death. And no one understands cost or pain or discomfort more than Jesus who didn't just leave what was comfortable for him in order to be in our mess, but took the weight of our sin upon him on the cross and died for the sins of humanity. Nobody understands inconvenience and cost and sacrifice and surrender more than our Jesus. And the same Jesus, breaking through the other end of the tunnel of surrender and glory and power declared by the Father to be both Lord and King of the universe, sitting on the right-hand throne of, of God, full of glory, now calls anybody who would listen, take up your cross, die to your agenda, and follow me. Some of you are maybe still asking, why would I do that if Jesus is so inconvenient? I just moved here. Santa Barbara's supposed to be fun. I'm having a happy life. The beach is there. I love it, and you're ruining it. Jesus, I have a hunch that most or at least many of the people in this room, keeping in mind all of the struggles and battles you are currently facing right now, that the last thing you need right now is just more convenience in your life. You need hope. You need true godly power. You need transformation. You need redemption. You need healing that lasts. And you need for the demons, whether literal or figurative and metaphorical in your life, who have been tormenting you for days to be scattered in your midst in the presence of of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And only one person promises to be able to do all of those things. If you want convenience and comfort and security in your life, there are a thousand better places to get it than this church. But if you want hope, you found it at the feet of Jesus Christ. Ask uh, James and Gabrielle to come out here. As we sing a few songs... I want to invite you into something. More than a convenient life. Jesus didn't come to make you more churchy. He came to make you more like himself. 
And sometimes that's going to involve a battle with your flesh, with the world, with the devil. But Jesus promises that even though in this life you're going to have trouble, take heart because Christ has overcome the world. And this is the victory that we have to overcome the world, even our faith. The question we should be asking now as we sing is, is there anything that you need in your life to surrender over to God? Not out of guilt and shame, but out of joy and delight that this is the life that you get to live with God. And surrender could be boiled down to one phrase, if I could put it this way. It's looking at Jesus in all of his glory, being compelled by him and saying, I want more of you at any cost. Person in this room who can say that in their innermost being. Well, I believe be able to step into a world that perhaps they have not tasted yet. But it starts with surrender. You may be throttled by spiritual opposition today, but for the person that surrenders more of Jesus than any cost, you will be able to leave like Legion, formerly known as, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done for you. But it starts with you and me. In what areas of your life do you need to be set free from? I've got good news for you. Jesus is in the business of setting people free. And he's not about to stop now. Heavenly Father, have your way with your people today. Bless us with your holy presence. Scatter the darkness. Push back the enemy. Reveal the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ deep into our hearts and minds and give us everything that we need to look to you and to take one more step forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.